Well, you have heard me say this if you've been around here any time at all, but I think that being a dad is one of the best gigs in all the world. And like many of you, I think probably like all of you who are parents, uh, my kids, they mean the world to me. Uh, when I look back about becoming a dad, I think becoming a dad was, was nothing short of something cathartic. I, I mean, it was and continues to be one of the great defining moments of my life. And, and when I became a dad uh, back in 2010, it, it really did something to me. It really did. It, and in some way, it changed me. And I think and I hope uh, that it, it was for the good. Uh, that said, I'm crazy about my two sons. I got one over here and sitting on the front row, and I got one over in Kids Creek and Shepherd's 12 and Grayson's 9. And, and when I talk about my boys, and if I tried to tell you how I feel about my boys, really, uh, the amount of love that I have for them, I really don't have words to adequately describe it. Uh, when it comes to my two sons, I think they're great. I think they're great. Perfect? <laughs> Absolutely not. Are they frustrating? Many, many, many times. Uh, they are frustrating. Do they make me smile? They make me smile all the time. Uh, do they make me angry at times? You better believe it. Do they disobey me at times? Unfortunately, they do. Do they mistreat each other sometimes? Indeed. Uh, does that ever change how I feel about them? Not for a single moment. Uh, something you know if you're a parent, if your mom or your dad or your grandfather, grandmother, uh, kids give you all the feels. I mean, they give you the whole spectrum of feels. But here's something that every parent will understand. If you want to send a parent reeling, I mean really reeling, just mistreat one of their kids. Just mistreat one of their kids. And that brings me to last winter and our family ski trip to Big Sky, Montana. On one particular afternoon, it was just me and Shepard and Grayson and we were skiing together and the boys wanted to ski the steeper, more difficult part of this run that we had skied together a couple times before. And in order to do what they wanted to do, it required a long and, and, and quite frankly, a decently difficult traverse uh, around the top of the mountain underneath this rock cliff. And, and I brought this picture, this picture was taken from, from way far away and, and these little specks that look like ants, they're human beings. And, and so in order to get to where we want to go, we've got to go around this traverse. And, and this traverse is only about two feet wide. And, and once you commit to the traverse, you've got to fully commit to it if you're actually going to have the momentum that you need to get to the far side of the mountain. So I told the boys, I said, okay, we'll do this, but here, here's the deal. You got to follow me and you got to do what I do. You got to follow me and you got to do what I do. So I led, Shepard followed me, and G followed Shepard. And, and we were about two-thirds of the way over. I mean, this was going splendid. This was spectacular. I was so happy. I was so proud. I'd look back and I'd just smile to myself. I'm like, they got this. This is great. This is incredible. This is one of the great joys of being a dad. I'm loving everything about this moment. And about two-thirds of the way over, I heard someone yelling behind me. And it wasn't the sound of a brother yelling at a brother. This was not the sound of a child. This was the sound of a grown man. And so I, I kept glancing behind me until I, I realized what was going on. And what I saw, it, it really didn't even seem real to me. It didn't even seem like it could be real to me. I, I saw a grown man skiing right on the hills of Grayson's skis. I mean, he's right on Grayson's skis. And he's upset that Grayson's not going as fast as he thought he should be going. Because we're all headed to the same place. And so when I'm glancing around, I can hear the guy who's been, you know, apparently chewing in Grayson's ear the whole time. He says, get out of the way, you stupid kid. So I set my sanctification aside for a moment. And I could tell that it had upset Gray. I mean, I could tell he, he was, I could just see his whole countenance. And so I, I stepped off the path. I mean, I stepped just off the path. And of course, I told the boys, hey, I'm going to leave, do what I do, go where I go. And so here comes Shepard and here comes Grayson. Well, knowing this joker had to pass me by. And, and when he passed by, you know, I had to, you know, kind of stop him. And, and I'm not commending or celebrating or recommending my behavior. I'm just going to tell you about my behavior on that particular day. I did not greet him with a blessing out of the New Testament. I, I will tell you that. I said, hey, loser. 
I'm going to need you to get a life and learn how to be a man and not yell at little boys. Otherwise, I will come over there and kick your blessed assurance. I will do it. And I used a King James Version word in the moment and it made it all right. And, and, and so uh, it was just, I mean, that's not my personality. That's not how I roll. That, that's, not, that's, not, that's not me. But it was my kid. And man... He was mistreating my kid, and I, I don't know, something came over me. Something similar happened about a week and a half ago. We were on another family ski trip, and I realized there's a pattern developing here. <laughs> and, and we were on another family ski trip, and, and we were waiting, me and the boys, we were waiting to get on the chairlift, and apparently neither Shepard nor I were paying attention because Shepard, he started moving forward, and I figured, well, since he's moving forward, I'll move forward. Grayson was the only one who had the good sense to stay where he was supposed to stay because it wasn't our turn to get on the lift. And so the problem was, here in Shepard and I, we go commit to like we're getting on the chairlift, except there's another family in queue to get on the lift. So in that moment, the lift operator, you know, who could have just pressed a button to stop, you know, the lift and avoid the whole situation, but, but kind of chose to grab Shepard and pull him out of the way and basically, you know, knocked him to the ground. And, and I was able to, you know, take care of myself and abort the moment and, and move out of the way. And then the operator, you know, yelled at Shepard, was like, get up and get out of the way. And, and that was okay. I understood it was our fault. We were in the wrong. But then it was like the operator took, took their foot to like scoot him out of the way. And it was too much like a kick for me. And I said, hold on a minute. Who do you think you are and what do you think you're doing? Uh, talking this way, treating a kid this way. Matter of fact, my kid. And I went on, I was like, this is the most unprofessional thing I've ever seen. And then the operator started to go back into the operator's booth and I said, don't you walk away from me. And I start taking my skis as authoritatively as I could, scooting towards the person. And, and then I look around and there's Shepard and Grayson looking at me. And then behind them, we're Corey and Ashley and Macy and Pruitt down here on the front row. And then I'm just like, okay, I'm an idiot. I, I feel terrible. I'm going to have to apologize to everybody later. But, but I'll just tell you, I take it personally. That's not my personality. That's not how I live my life. You know, all throughout the year, apparently just on ski trips. But I take it personally when anyone mistreats or disrespects one of my kids, matter of fact, this is what I believe. I could be wrong, but this is what I believe. I believe a good parent gets offended when their child is mistreated or disrespected. And here's a question on the backside of that. What if God is the same way? What if God is the same way? What if how a good parent feels when their child is mistreated or disrespected is nothing but a distant echo and a faint reflection of something that is true about God that is showing up in me and showing up in you? What if God, what if the God of the universe, the creator God, what if God gets offended when those who bear his image are disrespected or mistreated? What if that's true? Now, today we're going to end our series called Where We Stand, Timeless Answers to Timely Questions. And, and the motivation behind this series was to help us better navigate a divisive culture that's filled with all of these difficult questions, all the while in the midst of escalating emotions, dehumanizing stereotypes, insulting dialogue, and a pervasive and growing us versus them mentality. How do we navigate that culture that's very divisive, filled with all of these difficult questions, social questions? relational questions, theological questions. You know, how do we do that? And we're saying that we do that by taking our cues from Jesus, who was described as being full of grace and full of truth. That Jesus had unconditional grace and uncompromised truth. He was all grace, all truth, all the time. He never compromised the truth and he never placed conditions on grace for those who fell short of the truth. He was all grace, all truth, all the time. Jesus believed in the power of the truth. He believed that the truth had the power to convict us of wrong, motivate us to want to do right, enlighten us to know the difference between right and wrong, and he believed that the truth had the power to set us free from the lies that keep us enslaved to sin. But at the same time, not only did Jesus believe that about the power of the truth, Jesus believed that grace has the power to forgive us, inspire us, 
and restore us when we fall short of the truth. Uh, Randy Alcorn, um, who, who's a great writer, and he, he's written different, different books about different subjects, but I think he sums this up really, really well. He says, attempts to soften the gospel by minimizing truth, it keeps people from Jesus. Attempts to toughen the gospel by minimizing grace, keeps people from Jesus. It's not enough for us to offer grace or truth. We must offer both. And and this requires us to adopt this type of framework. And and quite frankly, a different framework than many of us and many churches across the country have traditionally chosen to adopt. So this type of framework really begins to shape how we think about our approach to ministry and our approach to life. Our approach to ministry as a church and our approach to life as individuals. It really begins to shape our approach to conversations and interactions with people that we disagree with or people who don't disagree with us. And as we adopt this framework and as we actually spend some time to think through it and what it means, we begin to understand that love isn't tantamount to approval. Disapproval isn't tantamount to hate. And as the church, as this church, hopefully it begins to remind us that accepting sinners doesn't mean affirming the sin. It doesn't mean that at all. And a refusal to condemn a sinner isn't the same as condoning their sin. And the reason this becomes part of our framework is because we're taking our cues from Jesus. Now, this is a far from easy approach, as I've tried to say to us week after week after week, but I believe it is by far and away the best approach. If you adopt this, If I adopt this, if we adopt this type of approach to life and to ministry, will conservatives accuse us of being too liberals? And will liberals accuse us of being too conservative? Perhaps. Will other Christians, Christians that may not go to your church, Christians in the community, will other Christians maybe in your family that you're friends with, will they mischaracterize and misunderstand you? Probably. But do we still need to do the hard work in order to follow the example of Jesus, all grace, all truth, all the time, without a doubt? Especially in a world, now listen to this, especially in a world where only 9%, 9%, where only 9% of non-Christians have a favorable view of Christians. That's less than one out of every 10 have a favorable view of Christians in this country, only 9%. That should be concerning. That should bother us. We shouldn't just explain that away or say, well, that's just the world and that's what sin does and Jesus said you'll be hated by the world and all of these things. Instead of just trying to use some type of Christian cliche or some verse to quote and explain it away, maybe for a moment we should just wrestle with the fact that a lot of us may not be that likable. In the way that we have chosen to engage in the culture, the way that we've chosen to have conversations, the way that we've chosen to talk about specific subject matters and issues, maybe we've just not been very likable. Maybe there's some blame on our side. Maybe there's some blame on the other side. I don't know, but at least we should think about the fact that only 9% of non-Christians say they have a somewhat favorable view of Christians in this country. That said... We're going to wrap things up today because I could have kept this series going on a long time. But today we're going to wrap up this series by talking about something that we hear people talk about a lot. Uh, there's a lot of talking about this, but, but I'm convinced, and I could be wrong, I'm convinced there's not a lot of thinking about this. Today we're going to talk about the sanctity of life. And there's just a lot of talk about that. And again, what's striking to me is the irony, if Christians are truly champions of life, how is it that we have only 9% of non-Christians who, who think uh, we're somewhat positive to the culture or that they have a somewhat favorable view of us? I don't know, it just, it just kind of drives me a little crazy and it, and it bothers me. But, but here's some things to think about because we hear the sanctity of life a lot. It, it, it's a theological idea, it's a political idea, it's a social idea, and, and it's talked about by lots of different people for lots of different reasons. But, but here's some things just to think about in order to frame it and to get our minds working just a little bit. Is it possible, because most of the time when we hear, you know, sanctity of life, the the one thing that comes to mind is, okay, we're going to talk about abortion. We're going to talk about abortion. You know, sanctity of life, okay, we're we're talking about abortion. But is it possible for someone to be anti-abortion and not necessarily pro-life? That's something to think about. And immediately we want to say, well, that's not possible, but 
Maybe it is. Maybe it's possible that a lot of Christians are anti-abortion, but they're not necessarily pro-life, which is why nobody really wants to listen when they talk about being anti-abortion. I don't know. I'm just asking questions. Why are so many people who are passionate, you know, in terms of being against abortion are also very passionate in support of the death penalty? Is that okay? Does, does that, is that a disconnect in any way? Can, can you champion you know, the, the life of the unborn and champion the death of someone who has been convicted of a crime? Is there any disconnect in, in the continuity of the sanctity of life? Is that something we should think about or consider or to make sure that at least we've thought it through and we're just not adopting something that we've never chased down? Why do I think this way on this and why do I think that way on that? Why are so many people you know, who call themselves Christians, and I know I'm broad stroking and, and it's not true of everybody, but, but why are so many people who call themselves Christians concerned about legislation about abortion, but seemingly apathetic when it comes to politics and legislation and policies about poverty among minorities, which is the number one contributor to abortion in the country? And, and why would you be concerned about one and not be concerned equally about the other if the other is really fueling what you say you are super passionate about? Why just advocate for the unborn and go silent when it comes to the hardships of those who are now born and living as children in difficult circumstances in less than ideal communities? Uh, so it, it's a big idea, and it's just not about abortion, and it's just not about this or about that. It's, a, it's the sanctity of life, and it comes from a Latin word, which means sacred, the sacredness of life, that the idea that we believe that every single life is sacred. That's what we're going to talk about, and we're going to pick it up where we were last week and just keep on plowing through that material. In Genesis 1.26, it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image. And if you weren't here last week, you should go back and you should listen to last week. Let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and over the wild animals and over the creatures that move along the ground. So again, Moses, he establishes after a lot of verses about creation, and again, it's not about how God did it, but that God did it, that human beings are the crown jewel of all creation. That means that human beings, and I know this, this may not need to be stated for all of us, but uh, maybe we just need to make sure we're all on the same page. Moses in Genesis is teaching us from the very beginning that human beings are of greater importance than the fish that are in the sea and the birds that fly in the air and the animals that roam upon the land. That human beings are more than animals. They are human beings and they are of greater importance than all the other animals that God has brought about into existence because humans alone bear the image of God. What sets humankind apart from the animals? Because humans bear the image of God. And this is revolutionary when you consider when Moses wrote this to the culture that he was writing to. And so here's the big idea. Every human being is made in the image of God. It's simple, and I want all of us just to say it out loud right now so we know we're on the same page. Ready? Let's go. Every human being is made in the image of God. Somerset, that wasn't very loud. I'm going to give you another chance. All right, ready? Here we go. Every human being is made in the image of God. And so that's what he's saying. That, that's Genesis 1. That's Genesis 2. That human beings are different from the angels. Human beings are different from animals. They're different from plants. They're different from all the other created order because they and they alone bear the image of God. And here's what that means. Every person, every human being bears the image of God. The person you disagree with most bears the image of God. The person you like the least, they are created in the image of God. The person who shares your faith is made in the image of God. The person who not only doesn't share your faith, but despises your faith, they are created in the image of God. The person whose choices you can't understand, that frustrates you, that anger you, that you just can't wrap your head around, that person is created in the image of God. The person that you are least like, you share the least amount in common with, that person is created in the image of God. Every person is made in the image of God. That's what Moses is making clear over and over and over again in Genesis 1 and also in Genesis 2, and he says it in different ways. And the idea 
is one of the most profound and consequential ideas in all of Scripture. That's the reason it behooves me when people just want to dismiss Genesis. They dismiss Genesis because of reasons that Genesis was never intended to be read for to begin with. Uh, they, they, they dismiss Genesis because of science or because of this, but Moses is not writing a text for science. He's writing an explanation about the origin of the universe, and he simply says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and God created the earth. And then he introduces us to this idea that mankind, that you and I, and all the people that occupy this planet at any given moment throughout history, that every single person is made in the image of God. And it is so profound of an idea that that idea, you can trace it throughout the Old Testament because it is one of the central things that help us understand what does it mean to be human? Why is it distinct for us to be human? Why is it unique for us to be human? Why is it that human beings are of greater importance than everything else that God created? Now, believe it or not, whether you've thought about it or not, these verses in Genesis 1 that we just got through looking at, this is where the notion of all men being created equal, this is where it comes from. If Genesis 1 is not the anchor to which we anchor our sense of morality or our sense of, you know, our view of the world, there's no other worldview that gives us a rational, logical anchoring to the idea that all people are created equal under God because all people are created in the image of God. Uh, apart from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and, and what Moses introduces to us through that ancient literature, there's absolutely no reason to believe in things like civil rights or women's rights or children's rights or the rights of the poor or the marginalized or misfits or the discarded. There, there's, there's absolutely no rational or logical reason to believe in any of that stuff, that those things are absolute and objectively true because apart from God, and apart from God creating this world and placing his image upon men and women, there's no reason to believe in any of that stuff. And in a world where so many people say, I believe that, I think that that's just intuitive. I think that that's just obvious. That's self-evident. We all should just stop for a moment and remind ourselves throughout most of history, it has not been self-evident that all people are created equal. And it's not even all that self-evident by the way that our world continues to act today. It's only Genesis 1 and 2, which is so breathtaking in its influence and in the profundity of what we find there that still finds its relevance in what we're wrestling with today. I mean, it just gets me all kinds of excited. And so to go back to it again, it says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them, and just think about this for a moment. I just want to geek out for just a second. Moses put these words in play because we believe that he was inspired by God to do so. And as he was inspired to do so, he put these words out there and these words have gone out. And it's brought order to the chaos of the world. It's brought a framework and a worldview through which people see other people and the way that we think government should behave and people should behave and nations should behave. And so many times people believe certain things, but they never think, why do I believe this? And what are the origins of these beliefs? And are these origins of my belief, are they actually anchored to rational, logical, you know, evidence and reason? And for Christians, we can believe wholeheartedly that all people are created equal because we're told it's true from the very beginning. So what Genesis introduces us to is straightforward and it's far-reaching. And what it means, and it means lots of things, but I'm just gonna give you some of the headlines. It means that there's really only one race of people upon the planet. You know, we're conditioned, and I know, what, I know what we're talking about when we say that, you know, there's all of these multiple races, there are different races of people, you know, what race are you, and I, I get all of that. But in, in the theological sense, in, in a very foundational sense of what we're introduced to from the beginning, there is really only one race of people, and that's human beings. That's the human race. We're all descended from the same place. We're all descended from those who have bore the image of God going back to the very, very beginning. We may look different from each other, may me see the, diff the world differently from each other, but we believe because we are human, 
despite how we look, despite how we believe, despite how we behave, that we're all equal in value with one another when it comes to God. That God is equally concerned and interested in all of us because we all equally bear his image. And it's these verses which serve as the foundation for the repudiation of things like racism. I mean, we're still arguing about and dealing with and having conversations with, and it's still a big part of what we're wrestling with in the 21st century. The repudiation of racism Racism goes back to Genesis 1. We're all but one race of people. And to discriminate or to mistreat or disrespect another person, the human race, again, it's an attack on the image of God. So racism, nationalism, that says, hey, this country's citizens are more important than another country's citizens, or just because we're Americans mean that we matter more than anybody else on the planet. Things like nationalism, classism, that the rich is more important than the poor, or the middle class is more important than the poor, or sexism, that men are more important than women, or women are more important than men, or elitism, or ageism, doesn't matter really. You know, if you're old and elderly and you can't contribute, then you're less important than somebody who's young and vibrant and can contribute. Any idea, any philosophy, any ideology that devalues a life, any life for any reason violates the idea that every life is sacred. And we learn this from the very, very beginning. Now, in these verses and the meaning behind these verses, that's where the notion of the sanctity of life comes from. That's where it's born. That's where it begins. It begins in the book of beginnings. It begins in the book of Genesis. And when we talk about the sanctity of life, at least when we take the scripture seriously, if we take the scripture seriously, when we're talking about the sanctity of life, we're talking about the unborn and the born. Are there difficult questions? Are there difficult circumstances? Are there difficult issues that we have to wrestle through when we're talking about the sanctity of life? Absolutely. Is there a lot of pain and trauma and emotion and a lot of backstory and a lot of consequences that can be read into this whole issue that we all have to wrestle? Absolutely. But when we're talking about the sanctity of life, we're talking about life when it comes to the unborn and we're talking about life when it comes to those who have been born. And the reason that we get this idea is from Genesis and from the Old Testament because it establishes the sacredness of every life, from the beginning of life to the end of life, or from the womb to the tomb. And like I said, it's not my, this is, listen, this is not, the Republicans didn't come up with this. A political party didn't come up with this. A nation didn't come up with this. This idea of the sanctity of life we get it from the word of the Lord. We get it from Genesis and we get it throughout the Old Testament. I know, I know you, 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 there's a lot of crazy stuff in the Old Testament, but there's a lot of beauty in the Old Testament. And, and once we can put the Old Testament in its place and once we understand how to interpret it in light of what Jesus has said and in light of the New Testament, oh my God. Goodness, the Old Testament no longer troubles us as much. Is there stuff in there that makes you just want to go kick something because you're like, why did you let that get in there, God? It's like, oh, yes, there's all of that. But when you understand the point of the whole thing, rather than just getting you know, discombobulated about parts of the thing, when you understand how it all fits together and you begin to see themes emerge and you begin to see an arc of a narrative begin to form, then all of a sudden you begin to understand how maybe God wants us to see the world and how God wants us to interact with the world and how God wants us to think about some very complicated things. Now, the idea when it comes to life being equally valuable, every life being equally valuable, no matter what, no matter what the situation, no matter what the circumstance, it is something that we find throughout both the law and the prophets, all of the Old Testament. And when you read the law of God, which I know, got 613 commandments, when you, when you really look at the, the law of God and, and you kind of just for a moment, you, you just set aside as much as you can the letter of the law and you just begin to contemplate what the spirit of the law is. The spirit of the law becomes crystal clear. It becomes pretty clear in the Old Testament, but in a minute, you're gonna see Jesus made the intent and the spirit of the law of the Old Testament, the law of Moses, absolutely crystal clear. And what you begin to see emerge in the Old Testament is this ethic that every life is sacred. 
because God's law, the spirit of his law, and the application of the law was almost always in order to protect life to make life better, to create flourishing among human beings. And again, God gave his law like a good parent gives rules to their sons and daughters because we love them and we want to protect them. Don't play in the road, don't play on the stairs. Don't play on the road, don't play you know, on the stairs because I love you and I don't wanna see you harmed. I don't wanna see you hurt. So I'm gonna give you some laws to live by. That's the law of God. God's law is birthed out of God's love, not God's anger, not any of, God loved us, so God gave us his law. Now, after the Exodus, and I'm, I'm gonna make this quick. After the Exodus, after Israel is rescued from Egypt, God basically gives Israel a new constitution. He gives them the foundation for a judicial system, a welfare system, a religious system, and it's all built upon, and it's all built around what was most important to God. The judicial system, the welfare system, the religious system, the social protocol, it was built around what was most important to God. So what was most important to God? Well, when you begin to read the actual text, you begin to see that what was most important to God, it was people. And specifically the powerless, the voiceless, the defenseless, the marginalized, the oppressed, the vulnerable, or as Jesus would say, the least of these. Uh, Philip Yancey, when he summed up the Old Testament, he said it's almost like God is saying on most every page, I stand on the side. I stand on the side of the oppressed, the marginalized, the helpless, the defenseless, and the powerless. He says that's almost exactly what you see all throughout the law. God's saying, this is where I stand. And if this is where God stands, where should we stand? If God stands on the side of the oppressed, the marginalized, the helpless, the defenseless, and the powerless, where do those who march under the banner of his name, where do we stand? So these laws that God gave through Moses to the nation of Israel, they were really, in many ways, social reforms. And in these social reforms, these laws, God sided with orphans and widows and immigrants and those who were disadvantaged. And, and you see it over and over throughout the law. And the only way that you can't see it throughout the law is that you just don't wanna see it throughout the law. He establishes laws that protect the unborn, that if something happens and a woman is injured and the baby in her womb is caused to die or death comes about, the penalty for that was the same as if you killed a living person. So God, God, God put laws in place for the unborn and the born. And many of us know that. But I wanna take it a little bit further because a lot of people have a very anemic sense of the sanctity of life, a very skinny idea of the sanctity of life. So God, God placed laws in place to protect the unborn. Uh, so we could talk about that, but I, I feel like there's a lot of talk about that. I wanna take it a little bit further. In Exodus 22, you find things like this. If you take your neighbor's cloak as security for a loan, you must return it before sunset. This is part of the law. This coat may be the only blanket your neighbor has. How can a person sleep without it? If you do not return it and your neighbor cries out to me for help, then I will hear for I and merciful, in contrast to obviously you who are not. Now I want you to listen, this is the law of God, this is the law of Moses, this is, this is that heartless, you know, just God wants to suck all the life and the fun out of everything, this, this is that law. And listen to where the heart of God is. Listen to what God is concerned about. He's concerned about somebody going to bed without a blanket. Whew, wow. That seems to be a bit of the spirit of the law. He, he goes a little bit further and he says, in a lawsuit, you must not deny justice to the poor. Why would he say that? Because who often gets neglected when it comes to justice? The poor and the powerless. That's just, that's just an honest reading of most of history. In the mountains, you know, we got a saying, but I'll tell you what, it's who you know. It's who you know. And you know what? It is who you know. But what about if you don't know anyone? What then? What happens then? Well, if you know somebody, you can pick up a phone and you can have a conversation and maybe you can try to talk some reason and maybe we can work a deal. But, but the poor and powerless, they often don't have anybody to get on the phone. 
The poor, for some reason throughout history, and I'm I'm not making any statements other than just this seems to be the way that history has worked. The poor is often dealt with as though they are less important and more dangerous. And you might even have statistics to try to make that case, but I'm, I'm just saying that throughout history, the poor has been regarded as less important and more dangerous. So you know what God did? God said, okay, I want to place within my law some protections for the poor to make sure the poor do not go without justice. Again, just let's listen to the heart of God and what he's concerned about. Listen to Exodus 23. He goes on, he says, be sure never to charge anyone falsely with evil. Never sentence an innocent or blameless person to death for I never declare a guilty person to be innocent. God, God, even all the way back in Exodus, all the way back there, God was concerned with those who are wrongfully accused and unjustly sentenced. Is that something that sanctity of life should involve? Any serious, robust discussion about the sanctity of life? Shouldn't we also be concerned about those who may be wrongfully accused or unjustly sentenced? There's some of you probably know the numbers better than I do, but just in what I could research, uh, some people would put that the number of wrongfully incarcerated people in just this country along is, is one out of 20. So well, that sounds pretty good, but not if you're one of them. Not if you're among the thousands that that number entails. Uh, Some people even put the number of people on death row who may be innocent at 4%. So out of 100, that's pretty good. (laughs) Not if you're one of them. Not if you're one of them. But any sensible, surely any consistent discussion about the sanctity of life would also cause us to be interested in these things if for no other reason because we're told our heavenly father is concerned with these things listen to what else he says he says take no bribes for a bribe makes you ignore something that you clearly see it'll make you turn your head on something you shouldn't turn your head from a bribe makes even a righteous person twist the truth you must never twist justice or show partiality. Never accept a bribe, for bribes blind the eyes of the wise and corrupt the decisions of the godly. Let true justice, God says, let true justice prevail so you may live and occupy the land that the Lord God has given you. So God was calling his people to have a judicial system that did not slant in favor of certain people while slanting against the interest of other people. He says, do not allow a judicial system to exist within your culture that I'm giving you where the poor and the powerless and the vulnerable pay a greater price than everybody else. And again, this is is revolutionary type thinking. Some of this thinking is what inspired the original founders of this country. Their ideas about what is just and how judicial systems are supposed to work and who it's supposed to protect. God's heart in the Old Testament, at least from my reading, seems to be concerned, you know, not only with the innocent person that may be wrongfully accused in sentence, but also with the guilty person that gets an unjust punishment because they happen to be part of a vulnerable class of people. He goes further. And I know it's a bit uncomfortable. It almost feels like political. It it almost feels like we're talking about things that people are talking about today. It it almost seems like some of the rift that exists politically within the country today about the things that are important to this party, but not so much this party. And it's almost like, wow, this is as relevant as today. And if it feels that way, it's because it is. In, In Exodus 23, he goes on, he says, but you must not oppress foreigners. You know what it's like to be a foreigner for you yourselves were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. So he's talking about people who are not only citizens of Israel, he's talking about people who are not necessarily Jewish. And he says to his people, God says to his people, if your compassion and your concern with humanity stops and starts at the border, your compassion and concern for humanity is too small. Your idea of the sanctity of life is anemic. If your idea of the dignity and worth of people, if it stops and stops at the border of Israel, Boy, you have got an anemic idea of the dignity and worth of humanity who bear the image of God. This is all sanctity of life. These are ideas that we're still trying to catch up with in the 21st century, and I didn't expect anybody to shout or run around today and say amen. That's okay. You can look at me like I got three heads. I'm going to keep on going. I'm not going to be quiet. This 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 is the scriptures that we champion. We just don't like to quote because it doesn't fit our political parameters. It sounds too much like them, or it sounds too much like them. And so we can't talk about this because how possibly could we interweave a robust sense that every life is sacred and still be in good standing with a political party? I'm not sure you can. 
I'm not sure if you can have a robust sense of the sanctity of life and fit in with the Republicans or the Democrats. I just don't know. That's all right. I told you, maybe my last week I may need to job somebody. That's okay. I'm good at what I do, whatever. But anyway, all right, not what I'm doing right now, but I can be good at whatever you need me to do. All right. <laughs> Sounded a little arrogant. I don't know. Too many people think that already. All right. So, so we're trying to catch up with this. And let me give you some more. Deuteronomy 24. Never take advantage of the poor and destitute laborers, whether they're fellow, fellow Israelites or foreigners living in your towns. He said, hey, God, God says, I'm concerned with fair wages. What? That sounds like sheer economics. What? Yeah, I'm, I'm concerned with fair wages. I, I'm, I'm concerned that people earn a livable wage. And I don't want my people to exploit other people for your own economic interest. Don't exploit someone's desperate situation for your benefit. Who would do that? And God would say, not my people. So I'm building this into the system. And I'm telling you whether they're a citizen or not, pay a livable wage, pay a fair wage. This goes for people of Israel and the people not of Israel. I mean, this is amazing. He says also in Deuteronomy 24, he says, you must pay them wages each day before sunset because they're poor and they're counting on it. If you don't, they might cry out to the Lord against you and it would be counted as sin against you. You know, we talked about it Wednesday night with a group of guys and it's like, hey, let's just preach on sin some more. Okay, here's some sin. Here's some sin. And we wonder, well, this is not the kind of sin we're talking about when we say, let's talk about sin. In other words, he says, anytime that you create, participate, approve of, have no concern of being a part of a system that consistently takes advantages of those who are powerless, vulnerable, and defenseless, he says, that's pretty much what I would call sin. In other words, if it bothers God, and we're seeing what bothers God, he says it should bother us. It should be part of your sanctity of life ethic. True justice, true justice must be given to foreigners living among you and to orphans. And you must never accept a widow's garment as security for a debt. This just isn't about, you know, one group of people. God says this is about all people because this is about the image of God that people bear. These things matter to God because people matter to God and it should matter to us. God knew our tendency to favor certain people over others. We, we all can do it in our own way. And so God says to Israel, because they had the same tendency as we do, he says, always remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you from slavery. That is why I've given you this command. He says, remember when you were helpless, voiceless, defenseless, marginalized, oppressed, when that was you, I dealt with the injustice you experienced in Egypt. You know what that feels like. How would you not side with the people that you used to be like? Now use your new position, use your progress as an opportunity to reach back and to protect those who cannot protect themselves because you know what it's like not to be able to protect yourself. That's how you were in Egypt. So God, over and over again, he identifies with the bottom of the ladder. He says, I'm a father to the orphan, I'm a husband to the widows. That's who I am, I'm on the side of those who have nobody on their side. One more thing, I don't want us to miss it. I do not want us to miss it. God wanted Israel to deal, wanted them to deal with everyone just and fair. He wanted them to do it justly and fairly. Despite their circumstance, despite all the other categories or labels, because it goes back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, everybody bears the image of God. So he says, I want equal treatment under the law. I want to give special consideration for the people who have no one considering them. God built that into the law. That's amazing. He says, some of you, you're gonna be considered because of who you are and what you have. There are some people that no one are naturally gonna consider. So I'm gonna build it in that they have special considerations because nobody is considering them. And in a world where tribes and bloodlines ruled, this was revolutionary and it was breathtaking. Some of it, some of it doesn't even sound American. You see, God's standards don't always sound American, but they always do sound like God. And as I've told you before, sometimes being a good American and being a good Jesus follower are not the same thing. But our greatest loyalty, if, if we're being honest, has always got to be with being a good follower of Jesus, 
before we're concerned with being a good American. And I'm afraid we got a lot of Christians in the 21st century way worried about being a better American than they are a follower of Jesus. And so he says, when you consider the sanctity of life, he says, you, you got to consider your greatest loyalties. And it goes back to what God has taught us about each other. And, and so much of the law is that. And so much of the minor prophets and the prophets are God calling the people out of their sin. And so what was that sin? The mistreatment of the people who could not protect themselves. The mistreatment of people who had no voice to speak up for themselves. Just read it. It's particularly in Amos, I'm gonna give you this and I'm gonna to have to wrap it up because you're not listening fast enough, obviously. Here's the idea in the Old Testament. God is offended when those made in his image are mistreated and offended. Just like you get mistreated and offended when someone mistreats and disrespects your kid. You get bothered by that. You, you, it, it, it does something on the inside of you. God gets offended when people who are made in his image are mistreated and disrespected. He just does, it's obvious. And so God sent like prophets like Amos, he sends sends them to God's people and he says, I, I want you to know I hate your show and your pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals, solemn assemblies. I won't accept your burnt offerings, your grain offerings. I won't even notice your choice peace offerings. So away with your noisy hymns, God says. Away with your praise. I won't listen to the music of your harps. Why? Because they were denying justice to the most vulnerable and least protected in their, go read it. They, they, were, they were disregarding certain people who were made in the image of God. The helpless and the powerless were being exploited by a socioeconomic political system that was being abused and misused. It was ignoring the spirit of God's law. And he said, instead, here's what I would rather, I would wanna see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. But let justice roll like a river, righteousness like a never fading stream. He says, if you're not interested in justice for all, put down your Bible, stop singing, find something else to do. He says, I'm interested in righteousness, right relationships with people based on the values that are valuable to God. I want you to take actions to ensure justice because all people are to be treated with worth and dignity because all people have worth and dignity because they've been created in the image of God. And, and this is the essence of what we see in the Old Testament. This is it. Ever since the garden, we have a propensity to redefine good and evil in a way that serves ourselves and harms other people. And God calls us away from that. And that's the spirit of the law. Those who are made in the image of God are to be shown the love of God. What is grace and truth? Love. Those who are made in the image of God from the womb to those outside the womb. To the poor, the marginalized, the foreigner, the orphan, the widow, the wrongfully accused, the one suffering who was justly accused and justly sentenced, the vulnerable, the oppressed, those who have been caught up in an unjust banking system of borrowing and repayment. All of that, he says, these things matter to God. The society and systems with poverty and the ideas of equality and opportunity and discussions about sexism and racism and nationalism and all the isms, all of that, he says, concerns God because it's all wrapped up, all wrapped up in the sanctity of life. Animals destroy each other. That's what they do. Sometimes animals kill their own young. It's what they do. Animals take advantage of another animal's misfortune. It's what they do. Animals exploit each other. We are not animals. We are human beings created in the image of God. And we live distinct. We live above. We protect those who can't protect themselves. We speak for those who have no voice. We concern ourselves with legislations and policies that affect people because people are made in God's image. We care about unjust economic systems, judicial systems, sentencing guidelines, banking practices, healthcare availability, discrimination, racism, classism. 
We care about how the sick and elderly are treated. We care about how those who have physical or mental handicaps are treated. Why? Not because we're Americans, not because we're Republicans, and not because we're Democrats, but because we understand as followers of Jesus, every human being is created in the image of God. And that's the reason Jesus said there's nothing more important than loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself because on these two things hang all the law and the prophets. Those created in the image of God are due the love of God. As Christians, where do we stand? We stand at the foot of the old rugged cross where the ground is equal and everybody matters because everybody's been created in the image of God and every single one of those people that have been created in the image of God, God's son, Jesus of Nazareth, came to this earth and he died on that cross to pay for the sin of every sinner. And when we look at the cross, the cross reminds me not only that God loves me, but the cross reminds me that God loves all the people that I struggle most to love. And perhaps we should just turn our attention to the cross and be reminded that it is the place that grace and truth came together. It's the place where God said you fell short of the standard, but it's the place where God said, I'm dying for those who fell short of the standard. Truth from the cross says, your sin has a price that must be paid, but grace from the same cross says, it's already been paid for by the blood of another. Love. That's grace and truth. And I think we got work to do. What does the world need now? Love, sweet love. Heavenly Father, speak to us, Lord. Turn our attention to the cross. Turn our attention, God, to the central moment where the word became flesh and he dwelled among us and we beheld his glory. And there on the cross, we see him full of grace and full of truth, uncompromising truth, unconditional grace. And beneath the cross, there's no big sinners and little sinners, there's just sinners. And there's a savior on the cross who died for all of us sinners. And as we look around in the face of sinners, we see those who are created in the image of God, who are due the love of God. So God help us to be concerned about what you're concerned about. When we talk about life, may we have a robust love and appreciation and passion to protect the sacredness of every single life. And when we get to a point where we begin to forget, turn our attention to the cross. In Jesus' name.